This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. So turn with me again to Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and follow along. This is God's Word, God's holy Word inspired, given to us through the Holy Spirit. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, Ask him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I believe the Lord wants us to leave today and love Him, and love our neighbor. There's a theologian, David Wells, he's from South Africa. I'm going to quote him as much as I can today. I don't know how much time I'll have, but commenting on these verses from his book, God in the Whirlwind, he says, the second commandment that Jesus cited Do we have that quote? The second commandment that Jesus cited comes from a chapter in Leviticus in which God's laws for living were spelled out. 
There we're not left in doubt about what love for our neighbor means. It is more concrete than what we moderns might assume. It has to do with stealing, lying, slandering, committing injustice, or acting unkindly. This love has much to do with acting justly. This kind of justice has a far greater range of application than what we typically think of when we hear the word justice. Today, this word usually comes up in the context of the courts. But in this passage from Leviticus, acting justly has a sense of acting ethically, of being fair, being upright, caring enough for the other to do what is right by him or her. This love not only acts justly, but will want to see that justice is done for others. So I'm, sh I'm sure you, you sense the relevance of this text for today. In the midst of a pandemic, the death of George Floyd and the protests and riots that have taken place across the country as a result have added to the crisis we're living in today. Like most of you, I have watched the disturbing, heartbreaking, the brutal video of a Minneapolis police officer kneeling on the neck of Mr. Floyd who was handcuffed Repeatedly told the officer he couldn't breathe. He was pleading for his life. The officer and the other officers with him didn't respond to him, even when bystanders pleaded with them and told them Mr. Floyd was in trouble, and he died. And the officer responsible has been charged with murder, and we, all of us, are, are deeply troubled by the conduct of these officers. All have been charged with crimes. And we all have to wonder if anything can be done to change this, what is so predictable, pattern in our country. We're crying out to God. We're praying. We're asking for His help. We feel different things. We feel anger. We feel confusion. We feel fear, we feel discouraged, despair. We understand why there are peaceful protests. We are troubled and we are unsupportive of rioting and looting and vandalizing. There are discernible racial divisions in our country that are very pronounced right now. They're not new. They have a long and grieving history. And this pandemic has disproportionately affected minorities in our country, physically, economically, and it's deepened and intensified these racial divisions. Even before Mr. Floyd was murdered, our political leaders appeared more concerned about politicizing and accusing and virtue signaling than leading 
civil dialogue, helpful dialogue, is hard to find. Seems impossible, even in extended families. So what's the answer? How are we to feel this morning? How are we to act in the midst of all the cultural unrest? How can we avoid falling into line with the misguided arguments and the competing narratives that are so out there and so loud? How can we avoid just joining up? We have to align ourselves with God. We have to align ourselves with His standards and His purposes revealed in His Word. We are not left in doubt. We are not left without direction, even during times like these. Even the text that we have today in God's providence as a congregation speaks clearly. You already hear it. Even before I proclaim and try to exhort you from His Word, you already feel it. It's clear. It's specific. It's helpful. It gives us answers that are solid, that can be trusted, that can be helpful. It's about God's commands. It reminds us of our deepest need. We failed to keep His commands. He's provided a Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the Savior not just to save us from the wrath to come. We need the Savior for this present moment. Nothing is more urgent. Nothing's more relevant. George Floyd was made in the image of God. His murder is about one image bearer taking the life of another image bearer. And it's first and foremost a sin against God. A breaking of His commands. To assume our ethnicity is superior to others is the sin of pride. It is sin in relation to God. It's a sin against our neighbor. We have to understand that systemic racism from a biblical perspective is systemic sin. This is God's perspective found in His Word. The problem is sin before God in relation to other image bearers. And the answer is the Gospel. And my job is not to tell you about my opinions, my perspectives. The role of a pastor is to faithfully exhort you from God's Word. Our congregation this morning is being addressed by God's Word. That's what I'm doing. That's my role. That's what I am going to be judged by. My job is to be faithful to expound this Word and to help us apply it. We want to be like the scribe. We want to hear and answer wisely. We have a unique message. For these times, we have a message. It's the Gospel. And we're called as a congregation to faithfully proclaim the Gospel and through our attitudes and through our good works to live in a manner worthy of it. 
We're to reflect the grace of God in all that we do. And we believe the gospel will change the world. We should pray with John Piper, a pastor from Minneapolis. He has an African-American daughter. He's written a book on race called Bloodlines that has been recommended to me by African-Americans, and I recommend it to you. Here is his prayer. This is our heart for Minneapolis. We seek her welfare. We pray on her behalf. For those who knew George Floyd best and loved him most, bring them, Lord, your consolation. Direct their hearts to the God of all comfort. For Derek Chauvin, who put his knee on Floyd's neck for seven minutes until he died, we ask for the mercy of repentance and the judgment of justice. For officers Thomas Lane and Tutheo and Alexander Kuhn, who stood by, we pray that grief and fear will bring the fruit of righteous remorse. And may the seriousness of the killing and the cowardice of the complicity meet with proper penalties. For the upright police who have watched all ten minutes of the unbearable video of Floyd's dying, who consider it horrific and inhuman, who find it unbelievable that Chauvin did not say a single word for seven minutes as the man under his knee pled for his life, and who lament with dashed hopes that they must start again from square one to rebuild what meager trust they hope to have won. For these worthy servants of our city, we pray that they would know the patient endurance of Jesus Christ, who suffered for deeds he did not do. Amen. And with that, let's turn our attention to our text. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. If you remember, there's been one question after another. Seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, he asked him which commandment is the most important. Of, of all, our text begins with another question for Jesus from another Jewish leader. In Mark 12, Jesus was first tested by the Pharisees, beginning in verse 13, and then by the Sadducees, beginning in verse 18. This scribe heard Jesus' response. He said it was well said. And now he has a question. Now, all these groups are... The Jewish leaders, they are on the Sanhedrin. Each of these groups is represented on that council that ruled Jewish life. And these, these debates that we've read about in, in chapter 12 have all occurred on one day. This is one day Jesus is in the temple and they are bombarding him with questions one after another. Non-stop challenge and debate. He's being tested by the leaders of Jewish culture, the cultural elites, if you will, literally on their home court. And they are out to get him. 
Last week I wasn't with you. I was fishing with my boys in West Virginia. We thought of it as social distancing. And every year we do this, and my three sons and my son-in-law, we all went and spent several days fishing. And on the last night was quite eventful. I was actually almost drowned by a trout who took me down the stream, and we left after dark. On the way back to the truck, I fell face first into a ditch, and then I was attacked by an owl. I have two, son who, two sons who are birders, not bird watchers. We're all bird watchers. They're birders. And I was with one of them going out when he heard and saw this owl, which apparently is fairly rare. He pointed to it. When I looked up, I saw it, and it dove at me. And he was very excited and started calling the owl. Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! And very excited about it. Sees it again up there. Again, it, it dives at me. And he keeps calling. And I say, hey, that thing's trying to kill me. Stop calling it. It wasn't an innocent owl. I'm as excited as anybody about a rare owl and seeing it, but it wasn't an innocent owl. It was a mean and angry owl. And in a like way, Jesus isn't being asked innocent questions. He's being tested. We know where this is headed. These are Jewish leaders. People look up to them. They have authority. It's hard for us to imagine how much authority they have. They're trying to trap him. It is not safe. But verse 34 says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark uses very strong language here to say he won the debates. He prevailed. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, now the scribe, he's taken on all their challenges and he's prevailed. And the great throng, verse 37 says, heard him gladly. Now they're listening and they like what they hear. No more questions. Now he's going to set the agenda. Now he will ask the question. Now he will make the, the statement. He's beat everybody, but he's not pulling back. The debates are over, but now he's not going to quit the field, so to speak. He is going to take it, and he is going to teach us who he is. He's going to begin to give us more and more revelation about his person. This is his identity as the Messiah. You can't understand it based on the questions his enemies are asking him. They're not sufficient. He needed to say something more, so he asked his own question. Verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? One commentator said, after a day of question, questions comes the question of the day. That's the question of the day. How is the Christ? The son of David, since David calls him Lord. He's in the temple, surrounded by the religious leaders. This is the center of the Jewish people. It's intentional. He is Lord. And he's revealing that. We have 
a friend our congregation does who's an African-American pastor in Atlanta, Tony Carter. I recommend the message he preached to his congregation Wednesday night. I understand you can get it online. He tweeted this on May 30th. When social media gets loud, remember Jesus is Lord. When social media gets loud, remember Jesus is Lord. And then he has John 14, verse 1, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I think that's what the Lord wants to say to us today. He's Lord. Believe in Him. Two points from our text. Number one, Jesus is Lord. And number two, love is His command. First of all, Jesus is Lord. The point of the question is to reveal His identity. Jesus is Lord. He's the Messiah. He is David's Lord. He's not simply the Son of David. He is David's Lord. So when this scribe comes, he says, which commandment's most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answers, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's prepared to answer this question. His answer is a quote from Deuteronomy 6. There is one God. There is no other. Jesus is Lord. This passage is known as the Shema, if I'm pronouncing that right, which is unlikely. But I tried. I got counsel. The Shema. It comes from the Hebrew to hear. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses continually says, Hear, O Israel. And this is the Shema. This is... This was recited every morning and every evening by every faithful Jew. It's a confession of faith. Like the Christian church, we might confess the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed. Kings in Israel were judged based on whether they kept the Shema. Jesus is in the temple. He's challenging conventional wisdom. The cultural elites have a perspective of the Messiah. And he's challenging it. He's making statements. He's revealing who the Messiah is. It's him. And this is what that means. This is his identity. We know that the Jewish people, we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark, they're waiting on a descendant of David, the son of David. That is true, but Jesus has bigger categories. Conventional wisdom was... To think of the Messiah in terms of a king, an Israelite king who would come and bring military victory, political victory. But Jesus creates new categories, Lord, Son of God. And his question is directed at the scribes. They're the elite. They're the leaders. He's raised the question of who he is with his disciples Before, who do people say that I am? Now, he's doing it publicly. He's doing it in the temple. He's making a statement to these leaders. He's intentionally challenging them. And he does it by quoting Psalm 110. And he invites his hearers, including us, to 
to decide, is Son of David enough to describe the Messiah, to describe Jesus? He, he does affirm, yes, the Messiah would come from the house of David. He is, in one sense, a, a, the Son of David. But the question is, how does that relate to the identity of, of the Messiah? Does it capture it all? Verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit. David's the author of Psalm 110. So here he says, Psalm 110 is not just a, a poem that David wrote. Psalm 110. And so Mark 12 is the Word of God. David said it in the Holy Spirit. That's why we begin... When we come to God's Word on a Sunday morning, this is God's Word. It was written by Mark, given by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Jesus is making a point about the Messiah, about Himself, and He wants everyone to know this is God's Word. God the Holy Spirit spoke through David. This is divine revelation about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Lord said to my Lord. The point is found in these two words, the same in English but different in the Hebrew language. The Lord, Hebrew Yahweh, declared to my Lord, Hebrew Adonai. Two different words. The Lord said to my Lord. Psalm 110 was originally a hymn that was sung at the inauguration of a new king in Israel. The first Lord referred to God. The second Lord referred to the king. So at his coronation, the king of Israel was inducted as God's earthly representative. He was seated symbolically at the right hand, which was a place of honor, a place of closeness to God. It meant the king had a legitimate right to rule God's people in God's name. But by the time of Christ, the Jewish people understood but Psalm 110 referred to the coming Messianic king. The Davidic king had failed. The kingdom of David was no longer. And so now they saw that refers to the Messiah. And Jesus affirms that. He affirms that the second Lord refers to the Messiah. That's what it always meant. That was the true and the ultimate meaning. All the... All of Israel's kings pointed to this coming king. And the question of the day is, if David, who was the author of the psalm, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, then David called the Messiah his Lord, and the Messiah is superior to King David. He is David's Lord. The Messiah is not merely the son of David. He's not merely a descendant of David. That's what the scribes said. It's what the Pharisees said. It's what the Sadducees said. 
But it's not enough. He's not merely a descendant of David. He is Lord. Psalm 110 is a description, a revelation of His status. His kingship is transcendent. His kingship is all-surpassing. There's never been and there never will be a king like this one. He is the Sovereign. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. All this week when you read the news, just say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He sits at God's honored and authoritative right hand. He is the Son of David. More importantly, more powerfully, He's the Son of God. Remember the verse verse in the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Now notice that this is one, one story in Mark where Jesus actually commends a scribe. We should pause. Give it up for this guy. It's remarkable, because in verse 38, he will again say, beware of the scribes. This guy is unique. In general, the scribes weren't like this guy. After Jesus answered his question, back in verse 32, the scribe says to him, you're right, teacher. Scribes don't normally say that, do they? You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one, there's no other besides Him. To love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, He would have been very much for the sacrifices. He was associated with the temple and priestly sacrifices were huge. For Him to say this is, is amazing. He, he responds with a collection of Old Testament texts that reveal this guy knew God's Word. He's a scribe. He's an expert. And he agrees with Jesus that burnt offerings and sacrifices have to give way to a right relationship with God. He sees that. He understood that even the most sacred duties have no meaning unless they are motivated by love for God, relationship, fellowship with God. So Jesus says, when, when He saw this, he, he, that He answered wisely, He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now you need to catch no other Jewish leader would say that. Nobody would say that. It's a very Jesus-like comment. He's the one that knows who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. He decides. He's the judge. It's an expression of His authority. It tells us about who He is. You're not far. A scribe! 
The scribe is, has come to question Jesus. He's, he's equipped to judge the law. But Jesus has a higher authority. He is Lord. The scribe can judge if you're faithful to the law, which was very important. The law of God may not be important to you, but it was very important to the Jewish people in that day. And that's what scribes did. They judged whether you were getting the law right. So they had authority. They were important in that culture. It was critical that you understood the law and that you fulfilled the law. And they decided that. So for Jesus to look at this man and said, you're, you're not far from the kingdom. Because you agreed with me. <laughs> and that's how you get in. So let's pause for a moment and consider not just being near to the kingdom, but entering the kingdom, having a right relationship with God. We're talking about, before we look at the commandments, let's, let's consider what it means to be in a right relationship with God, to be declared righteous in His sight, to be, as the Bible talks about, justified, to be accounted righteous by God. For someone to be righteous, Old Testament and New Testament, it meant that they were rightly related to Him through His covenant. The righteous people in Scripture are not morally perfect. They are those who trust in the God of the covenant. They trust in His provision that He's made for forgiveness, for mercy, for life in God. So, as a result of trusting in His covenant, His provision, they have a right standing before God and they enter into relationship with Him. They enter the kingdom of God. In the new covenant, God, this is the gospel, God counts our sins as Christ and His righteousness as ours. When we believe, we have faith, we trust in Him alone, in His faith finished work on the cross. I don't have a righteousness of my own derived from keeping the law. I have a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. To, to, to count righteous is not to make inwardly righteous. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this, Do you not find within yourself an unceasing, low-grade impulse to strengthen His saving work through your own contribution? We tend to operate as if Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save for the most part, rather than what the text actually says, to the uttermost completely at all times we tend to operate as if hebrews 7 says jesus is able to save for the most part those who draw near to god through him but the salvation christ brings is comprehensive jesus is lord trust in him alone this morning jesus is lord and loves point number two is his command The scribe asked Jesus, 
What's the greatest command? Which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment surpasses all other commandments? This is a very common question in this day. There's, if you go back, there's, there's lots of answers by very prominent Jewish leaders over the centuries. Which, which command surpasses everything else? So we might talk about the greatest of all time basketball player, the GOAT. For all you NBA fans, that's a big topic. I don't think there are any in here today. Maybe they're live streaming. Well, what they would talk about in the first century was what's the greatest command from God of all? And what commandment, here's what he's trying to get at, does, do all, everybody has to obey, Gentiles, non-Israelites, what is mandatory? That's what these scribes dealt with, so he wants to know what Jesus, he saw that he answered the Sadducees well, well said, good answer, and so now he's going he's gonna to respond. There was, there was a difference between what they considered heavy commands and light commands. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He knew about this. They ranked these commandments. And so there, it wasn't uncommon. What's the greatest? Which is the most important? And summarize them. Summarize the law of God. So Jesus answers. The most important is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Four times in, in verse 30 we see this word, all. It's a total response the Lord calls for. This sums it up. The Lordship of God. All the heart, all the soul, all the might, all the strength. And Jesus adds, Deuteronomy 6 doesn't have this, all of their mind. He adds that. All of your thinking, all of your understanding. God is speaking to us today as a congregation. We're to love Him with all of our mind, our emotions, our spiritual life, our will, our strength. When social media gets loud, remember, Jesus is Lord. When there are different views, different opinions, different perspectives, remember, Jesus is Lord. This is the command. Love God with your whole person. And then the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, the scribe didn't ask for the second. So again, it's Jesus. He's setting the agenda here. Here's the second. <laughs> 
He's telling us what he wants us to do. God is speaking to us today. He adds the commandment from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Greek word used here is agape. It's the form of love that characterizes God. There are different words for love in the Greek language. This one's the one that characterizes God's love. It's the one in 1 Corinthians 13 that you read at all the weddings. It's this incredible love and you think, I I can't do that. It's God's love. There's no way to do this without loving God first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it raises the question, doesn't it? Okay, then who's my neighbor? Is Zach my neighbor? Because I need to know. I'm really hoping not. Because I don't want to love Zach today. Not that I would think that, but some, some other people might think that. Who is my neighbor? Actually, Luke tells Jesus teaching this. And there actually was a lawyer in the crowd who said, I have a question, who is my neighbor? Do you remember that? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to teach us who is my neighbor. In the Old Testament, neighbor clearly meant only fellow Jewish people. It did not include non-Israelites. It did not include Gentiles. But for Jesus, it's inclusive. Non-Israelites, Gentiles. He told the parable about a good Samaritan because the Jews did not love the Samaritans. I can think of some illustrations today I could use. I could say, that's your neighbor. And I could mention groups that you would not want to love. That's who this command is all about. Again, David Wells. This agape love, rooted in and arising from the character of God, is constantly undoing what is done in the world. At least it undoes the consequences of sin in the context of personal relations. When unkind, nasty, demeaning, or despicable acts occur, They do have an indelible nature. What is done has been done. It stands there. It's kind of irremovable witness that will not be silenced. And yet, while this is true, it's not the whole story. The past is indeed indelible. In the one afflicted, it lives on in the memory, maybe for a lifetime. But kindness, patience, and forgiveness reach across the divide to the other. They remove the presence of that irremovable witness. It is as if that witness is no longer there. And to the one who is forgiving, this act itself dissolves the poisonous, inward consequences of the bad things that have been said or done. To the one forgiven, opens up a whole new chapter. You ever been forgiven? What side of the debate are you on? What side of the racial divides? The question of the day is, do you love your neighbor?
Jesus says there's no other commandment greater than these. He, he unites these commandments. No one had ever done. This is radical. Just as radical as it feels today, it was more radical then. It is radical. Jesus comes in. He is Lord. And He adds, love your neighbor to the Shema. That every faithful Jew confessed morning and evening their confession. He adds, love your neighbor. John says this in 1 John 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. (laughs) For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Jesus doesn't allow for a mystical love for God. He doesn't allow for a humanistic love. Love that takes God out of the picture. He doesn't allow for those two things. He puts them together. Love for God and love for neighbor. That's who we are called to be. And it is unique and it is different. And you're going to have a hard time finding it. But by God's grace... If there are people like that, it'll change the world. One more quote from David Wells. It is natural for us to love our family and our friends. But it is not natural to love with agape love those who are unlike ourselves or those who offend us. It is natural for us as sinners to love ourselves. That is, we have an eye out for our own interests. We protect those interests. We seek advantages for ourselves, become irritated. We don't get our own way, and we're willing to step over others in pursuit of that self-interest. All of this comes quite naturally to us. What is unnatural in a fallen world is this agape love. This love is of another age, but this other age is now breaking into our world and is being made redemptively present through Christ's cross, through the Gospel. That's what lies behind. This other-oriented kind of love. It puts others ahead of that self-interest which is so persistent and so loud in our fallen nature, in our fallen nature. Again, 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because He first loved us. Anyone says, I love God and hates His brother, he's a liar. Jesus is Lord. And love is His command. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. In Christ's world, our mind, our understanding just work better when we believe. Don't partner with unbelievers. You're making a big mistake. Don't do it. Jesus has a cosmic purpose. 
He's going to destroy evil. And He is going to fill His church with His Spirit to do it. John says again, 1 John 3, By this we know, love, that He laid down His life for us so that we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Love seems defenseless, but it's not. It's powerful. It's the way of victory. It's what you see on the cross of Jesus Christ. Close with the story. The English reformer John Bradford saw prisoners being led to their execution and notably said, you've probably heard this, there but for the grace of God go I. He knew that because of his sin, he deserved to die. And in the end, he would be executed. Not for a crime. He hadn't committed any crime. He was burned at the stake in London for being faithful to preach the gospel. Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, made it a crime to teach biblical truth, and the sentence was death. He was tied to the stake, about to be burned. He looked to his fellow martyr, John Leaf, and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. He loved the gospel. He had to love the gospel. The Lord is calling us to love the gospel like that. Amen. Father, I pray. I pray for this church. I pray for this congregation. I thank you for the love that we have for one another. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us, guide us, and empower us so that we can change the world, so that we can make a difference. Jesus is Lord, is our confession. He is our Savior. And we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Lord, empower us so that we might love the world around us for your glory alone. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.